Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Who is in sunny New Jersey at the moment. It is true. Gosh, we've had some lovely weather here in New Jersey. Started off in Las Vegas and then Phoenix, Arizona, where it was very warm. It got to about 35 degrees. And then over the week, we went to Boston, where it was cold, all the way down to about 2 degrees. Now we're in New Jersey, where the temperatures have been hovering around 20 or 21 degrees. So we've been very lucky with the weather. Who knows what will happen next week as we continue the Grand Tour. It's good to have you with us for this edition. I did say that we were going to try and see if we could include a recording of the address that I gave to the employees of the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired on this podcast. That is unfortunately not going to happen. I did attempt to record it, but there was a lot of acoustical bounce uh, from the loudspeaker system, and it's really not of a quality that I think is worthy of the podcast. So I have put the address up on the blog if you'd like to take a read. It's quite long and it talks about the importance of self-belief and also of rehabilitation professionals and education professionals believing in the people that they work with and fostering that belief. So if you'd like to take a look, it's on the blog at mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N dot org. Now, while we're on the minutiae of the podcast, just to let you know that we are now on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is a popular service, particularly in the Android community, I think, where iTunes doesn't have a hold. And so it's really great to have been welcomed to the Stitcher family. If you use that app, then you can now search for The Blind Side. You can add it to your favorites. Of course, Stitcher is also part of the wonderful Sonos platform, so you can get to The Blind Side that way as well. And all being well, we should also now be on the TuneIn radio platform, so there are more and more places that you can hear The Blind Side podcast, and we really do appreciate all of the feedback that we've been getting. My guest on The Blind Side this week is Pam McNeil. Pam is someone that I've known for a long time. She's got a great history in the consumer movement in New Zealand. We didn't even get on to talking about the fact that she was a key person in the founding of an organization for blind and vision impaired women in New Zealand called NZ View. But she's done so much more. And she's set up an organization called Disability Responsiveness New Zealand. And we're going to have quite a wide ranging conversation with Pam about disability responsiveness, about the way that disabled people are perceived in society. And there'll be some pretty interesting views that she expresses, I think. So Pam is coming up with us shortly. There are simply no lengths and lengths to which we will not go to get the word out about Mushroom FM's programming. We tried Carrier Pigeon, and that was actually a really effective mechanism until our pigeon had an unfortunate catastrophe, so then we thought we'd have a go at Royal Proclamations. And that was working okay, but Catherine complained we were waking up Princess Charlotte with all the racket. Then someone told us about this newfangled email thing. Apparently we can make proclamations to the entire fungal kingdom. All you have to do to receive our low-traffic, announcements-only email list is visit our website, mushroomfm.com. No telegram needed, apparently. So join our announcements email list today and be the first to know about what's happening here at Mushroom FM. Please note, no real pigeons were harmed during the production of this message. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email 
send an audio file, or write it down and email the blind side at mosin.org. A bit of reaction to my comment last week regarding the issue that we hit with traveling around the United States when we got pinged by a domestic airline for having overweight luggage. And I made the comment that a lot of that overweightness, if you look, excuse the expression, was due to the fact that Bonnie was traveling with Lizzie and we had a lot of dog food. And I wondered whether there might be some allowance made for the fact that that dog food was an accommodation. Well, a number of people have said actually some airlines do accommodate certain types of technology. And if you have a note taker or even special equipment for you, if you are mobility impaired, say you need some sort of walker or something like that, that isn't counted. But apparently in most cases, dog food is not exempt from that. So there's the precedent that is set there. And it could well be argued that the precedent could be extended to dog food. Some people said, look, just don't be specific. You know, say you've got assistive technology in your bag and that it's for the blind and you may be okay. I mean, I'm not sure if I'd be happy saying that dog food is assistive technology as such. And I don't really like the idea of not being full and frank with the airline. I'd rather be upfront and see this issue dealt with in a transparent kind of way. But thank you for all the feedback. It seems that some people do, in fact, just say, look, this is technology for the blind in my bag, and that's why it's overweight, even though they're carrying dog food. Um, Let's hope that we can get this clarified in a meaningful way, though. Now, Rob Khan has been in touch, and I think Rob is from the UK. And Rob says that they, too, have an allowance which is designed to compensate for the extra costs of blindness, but that he is aware of some research which indicates that a lot of people who get this allowance perceive it as a way of going on overseas holidays and that they don't necessarily view it as some sort of accommodation to help specifically compensate for the costs of one's disability. And I suppose that is a danger. You can never guarantee the way that people are going to use these allowances and interpret them. There is an argument to be made, of course, that one's quality of life does tend to suffer as a result of attitudinal barriers and lost opportunity, and that if people want to use it for that, then so be it. That's their choice, and they should be entitled to make it. Others believe that it is an abuse of the system, and I guess there will never be consensus on that, but I appreciate you being in touch, Rob, and to everybody else who's been in touch with views on this guide dog issue. Another thing I failed to mention that's been talked about a lot in the blind community of late is, of course, the new Macs that have been announced while we've been traveling. Apple had another special event, which was streamed, and it was quite odd, actually, because I was able to watch it at 10 a.m., the same time zone as it was being delivered. And normally we have to get up at stupid o'clock for these Apple events in New Zealand. So that was a pleasant change. And these new MacBooks have been announced. They are a little bit more expensive than the previous generation of Macs. And there has been an article that's been written, actually, saying Apple is shutting the disability community, who tend to not have access to a lot of money, out of the Mac. And others are saying, well, Macs do tend to last for a very long time, so it's an investment that returns itself in the long run. The good news is that the new Touch Bar, which is actually powered by a form of iOS on the Mac, is going to be fully voiceover accessible. I really didn't have any doubt that it would be. I suppose the question is, and the jury will be out about this, is it actually going to give us a productivity hit because blind people tend to memorize a lot of keyboard commands that they use frequently. And I would think that it is quicker to 
choose the keystroke that you want to execute rather than swipe around on the touch bar and double tap the option that you want or perhaps even use a rotor gesture to get to where you want to be. So is there a kind of a dumbing down of computing taking place that may not necessarily benefit us. Uh, some people who are not blind in the Mac professional community perceive that this new generation of MacBook Pros is not worthy of the Pro name. Some of the specs look pretty good, though. You can get up to two terabytes of solid-state storage if you're willing to fork out with the cache. And only 16 gigs of RAM, though, and that has incurred a little bit of criticism, although Apple is saying that you know battery life will suffer if they go higher. I'm sure that there'll be subsequent generations of this new Mac technology. It'll be refined. I would imagine the price will come down a little over time, and people do tend to pay a price for being early adopters. There was one thing that I was personally looking for, really hoping for, that didn't eventuate, and that is a cellular option on the new Macs, and I was disappointed that that was not offered. The iPad, of course, does come with a cellular option, and I'm traveling at the moment with an iPad Pro, a 9.7-inch iPad Pro, and I specifically chose that because it has an inbuilt Apple SIM. So it has a SIM card slot, and I have a SIM from my New Zealand carrier still in that SIM card slot, and I can use it. But also, you can choose from a local carrier using the embedded Apple SIM. And from that menu, I can choose AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and a couple of other carriers as well that are sort of more obscure. I think they're like virtual network operators. And it's nice because if you really need more data, you can avoid excessive roaming charges by just hooking into a local carrier. I was really hoping that a cellular option would be offered in the MacBook line that offered that same technology, a SIM card slot, but also an embedded Apple SIM that would have been absolutely brilliant. And I would probably have made the iPad my last iPad if that were the case, because really it's the embedded Apple SIM when I travel that is such a compelling proposition. But no built-in cellular yet. There are notebooks that do it. The Microsoft Surface does it. There's a Lenovo ThinkPad that does it. There are a couple of others as well. And it's pretty nice because you don't have to go hunting for a Wi-Fi hotspot. And if you're a real road warrior, that can make a big difference. Of course, Microsoft have also had an event recently and they announced a new desktop called the Surface Studio. They also announced a new Surface Book. Now, the Surface Book is actually two computers rolled into one because you get a notebook and it's all very safely hinged together. And with the Surface Book 4, you get over 16 hours of battery life. Now, as someone who does a lot of travel and sometimes takes 12-hour flights, that 16 hours of battery life is really, really tempting, and I am having a very good look at the Surface Book at the moment. I'm not wedded to any particular platform. I like to choose the product that meets my needs best, and if that is not a Mac in the future, then that's fine. Currently, I run a Mac, and I run Windows in a virtual machine where I do the majority of my work, but there are some tasks that I perform on the Mac, and I do enjoy having the best of both worlds, and also, of course, being familiar with both operating systems for training purposes when I work with my clients. 
But yeah, that Surface Book 4 is looking pretty nice with its 16 hours of battery life. And then you detach the screen and it becomes a dedicated standalone tablet with much poorer battery life. But you can do the whole touch thing if you want. It's really good that there is a clear philosophical difference emerging between Apple and Microsoft. And that gives customers some choice. So Microsoft is going all in on the idea that you can and should put a touch screen on a laptop. And Apple is saying, no, that's not the approach that you should take with a notebook type device. Sure, there's a need for touch, but you can achieve that need better by having the little touch bar and the trackpad, which they have now made larger on the new Macs. So I think that it's great that there's this very clear differentiation taking place there and people can decide what works best for them. While we are on the subject of the Mac, by the way, don't forget that you know there, there, there has been a dearth of professionally produced information about the Mac and Mosin Consulting has sought to help. We have the Amadeus Pro audio tutorial. This podcast is being produced using Amadeus Pro, incidentally. And you can get that, become an Amadeus Pro Maestro from the Mosin Consulting store and learn how to do multi-track audio production in Amadeus. It's only 24 95 and it's available in mp3 and daisy format and we also have a very well produced book on pages the word processor for the mac and an archie robertson who have been mac veterans for a long time they're on the mac visionaries list and make great contributions there they've produced this book that talk about word processing on the mac side so if you would like to learn about that then do also check out my mac pages available from the mosin consulting store at mosin.org It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Well, they say nothing about us without us. That's the catch cry of the disability movement. And yet there's still a lot that goes on without us. And there's a lot that goes on in ignorance of what people with disabilities need. Someone who's seeking to take care of that and also who has considerable experience in the disability sector and the public service, has started a new organisation, a new company called Disability Responsiveness New Zealand. And since it's a New Zealand company right here in the studio with me is Pam McNeil, the founder of Disability Responsiveness New Zealand. Hi, Pam. Thanks for coming on The Blind Side. Hi, Jonathan. Very welcome. I'm pleased to be here. Tell me a little bit about your background, because you've had quite a fascinating history, career history and personal history. Um, Well, I guess I'm in about my third or fourth career at the moment. So yeah, I have had an interesting and varied career. My background is that um, I am the fourth of a family of four children, and I don't think I had any um, cousins or anything with poor vision, although I've discovered that I do have a niece with um, very limited vision. So maybe it started with me. Uh, so my sight was quite poor when I was a child, but I did have some sight. And over time, my sight grew worse to the point where I just have light perception now. It was really interesting because one of my first interesting experiences was that the uh, eye specialist that my parents took me to, that's after my mother got sick of being told that she was a neurotic woman and there was nothing wrong with me, um, the eye specialist told my parents that my sight would never deteriorate past the point that it was at that stage. And, of course, what happened was it did deteriorate. And I often say to people that as I got older, the print got smaller and my sight got worse. So... I guess I was functionally illiterate by the time I was 20 because I had stopped reading at about the age of 12 when it became really impossible. 
But because I still had a little bit of vision, I wasn't allowed to learn Braille, which I, I thought at the time and, and still think is a breach of my human rights, really. Um, so I didn't do that until much later on. But um, I found years later when I met up with that same eye specialist, I spoke to him about the situation and he admitted that, yes, he'd known all along that my sight would um, deteriorate to the point where I would become blind, but he didn't really like to tell me because he thought it was just too awful to contemplate. Right, and, and so because you had a misinformed prognosis there, an inaccurate prognosis, it really affected your education and a whole bunch of factors. So a lot of kids of that age, they wouldn't have wanted to learn Braille, and I think a lot of teachers struggle with this, that they know what the prognosis is and the the child wants to be normal and they perceive Braille as not being normal. But in your case, you were hankering for some Braille instruction and were denied it. Yeah, I, it interested me. When I was told that I needed to go to a school that had a visual resource centre, um, I discovered this thing called Braille and I was just curious about it. Now, at that point, um, I think that if a teacher had said to me, oh, look, it's called Braille and this is what you do and this is what it can do for you, I'd have been hooked. But I just got completely turned off it and actually instead got told that if I just tried harder, I'd really be able to read the print properly. This is with my very strong magnifying glasses and a magnifier as well. And that was in a visual resource centre. So it was a case of actually it's your fault, try harder. And nobody thought to get a second opinion about your visual condition. No, and I think the thing that was really tough for me and my family was that I, in the end, didn't want to accept that my sight was getting worse. But worse than that, my parents didn't believe me. And so we were sort of hooked up into this horrible nightmare where there was mistrust and all the things created in the family that you really don't want in a family. So it, it made for a very difficult growing up experience, really. And then on top of all that, my education suffered too. So you kind of rebelled. Yes, I did rebel, just probably like most people. I guess I waited till my teenage years. But again, that was difficult because being a teenager, you know, when you're a teenager, all you want to do is be accepted by your peers. And if you really don't have the faintest idea what's happening to you, it's quite difficult because you don't actually accept yourself. So I guess my, my warning to anybody out there who has any kind of um, disability issue or knows someone or has a child with any kind of um, vision impairment or some other sort of impairment, you know, just, just embrace it, just accept it. It's absolutely fine and people can get on with their lives once they are accepting of the situation that they're in. Um, it's not something I really care about anymore. You know, I'm a blind person and that's just fine with me. But then that's hard advice for a teenager to accept, isn't True. it? Teenagers don't like to be different. No, no. It's quite strange, really. It's it's strange in the same way that we all say that we don't want to be labelled. But actually, as soon as you have any kind of illness or some difficulty with your health in life, you want to be labelled, you want to know what it's called, and you want to know how many other thousand people there are who are in your situation. So we're full of... Um, we're full of contradictions, I think, as human beings. Did you have much interaction with adult role models, either who had some usable vision or who were totally blind? None at all. Would that have made a difference, do you think? Yes, I think it would. The um, The powers that be tried to talk my parents into sending me to Homo College, and the trouble was that by the time that piece of advice came along, 
I had begun to realise that if you had any kind of disability or you weren't in inverted commas normal, that, you know, that was a horrible thing. And I was really internalising other people's negativity, I think, by that point. And so, of course, I refused to go to home my college. And I think if I had gone, I would have had access to lots of things that would have enhanced my life, not the least of which is a really good musical education. Yeah, and for those who aren't aware, that's the School for the Blind in New Zealand, or at least it's what it used to be called. So then how did you kind of get back on track and set your career trajectory? Because you got into social work. I actually left school at 15 because by that stage I really just wasn't coping at all. Like Even though I was at the front of the class with my big thick glasses on, I couldn't read the board. And it was really farcical by that point. And what I'd done is I'd gone out in the weekend and got myself a job as a supermarket price writer and packer. And this is back in the day when you had to write the price of each item on the item with a large black felt pen, which of course suited me down to the ground because that was where I was at in terms of reading anything. Uh, And so, you know, at one point I knew the price of every jolly thing in the supermarket because I was the one that was writing the prices on and I also did the packing at the checkout so I was willing to do the jobs that no one else wanted because everyone wanted to operate the till Uh, and that kind of kept going in my life because when I eventually decided to go into social work and that was largely because I'd moved into a house um, because I had a guide dog it was really hard for me to, to, to rent anywhere because nobody understood about guide dogs in those days. So I rented a house from the Blind Foundation and I ended up working, I guess, with a lot of young blind people, newly blinded people, and helping them, I guess, to adjust to that and just sharing with them my own journey and letting them have someone to talk to and caring about what they were going through. And a friend said to me, look, you know, you're doing this all the time. You're really good at it. People respond well to you. Have you ever thought of doing social work? So that's why I decided to do that. So was it initially your intention that the social work training you got would help you to help other blind and low vision people? Um, By that stage, I'd kind of met the whole disability community and I'd become involved with disabled people's organisations in general. So by the time I started uh, with my social work career, yes, my, my object was to advocate with other disabled people in general. And of course, the irony is that the blindness organisation here, they got rid of social workers not long after that, didn't they? Yes, true. (laughs) (laughs) So where did that leave you? What career options did you pursue after that? I I, I actually ended up spending four years at university. So the reason I went to university, having left school at 15, was that um, by my mid-20s, I was eligible to be, I guess, reviewed as someone who could possibly enter the tertiary system, uh, even though I had no qualifications, so I could register as an adult student. And I always thank none other than our friend Charles Dickens for my social work career because um, I arranged through a friend to meet the head of the social work school, and he was very interested that this blind woman wanted to be a social worker, so he said that he'd come and see me at my home. And I had written to him, as I say, and one of the things I'd said in the uh, letter, for some reason, I'd sort of mentioned Dickensian attitudes and 
my love of Charles Dickens' writing and so forth. And this guy showed up, and of course he was a fellow, you know, Dickensophile, and thought that I was great just simply because I loved Charles Dickens. And uh, we had lots of discussions about the poor law and things like that. And yeah, from then on we were talking about, you know, disability issues. And he just got really interested in my perspective and um, what I wanted to do. So he just gave me a break. He gave yes. me my chance to, yeah. to go and do a certificate in social work, which was a year. And then when I passed that, and he was fantastic, by the way, as well, at making it making it easy for me to do it. So this was before the days of technology. I used to have to record all my lectures, and then by then I had learnt um, Braille by correspondence after a long battle, um, and so I'd Braille all my notes out, and that would take me for the rest of the week to do that. And um, at the end of the year, to sit the exam, I was actually allowed to record all my answers, which were someone else would read me the questions, I'd record them all onto a cassette tape. And all of that was allowed to. So there were modifications made, but I was still expected to know um, the, the work and everything. And so then I went and did a three-year postgrad diploma in social work. And then I went and worked for the Department of Social Welfare, as it was called then. So I didn't even work in the disability sector to start with at all. It is very fortunate that you and Mr Dickens were able to uh, help with that bonding because, <laughs> you know, so often people are capable, they're qualified, and they just need someone to believe in them and give them that lucky break. And, and yours came quite early. That was really lucky. Yeah, it, it's really, really important to have someone that believes in you. And, and I always credit, actually, the man who is now my husband for that mostly because it was him that first said to me when we first started going out and I was about um, 17, you know, you should become a social worker. You're so good at it. You're really good with people. You engage well with them. And so he kept putting that idea in my head. How did you find learning Braille as a young adult? Difficult. I learnt it by correspondence. I started out with a course that had already been um, written and produced, and I found that really slow. So I got friendly with um, one of the teachers in Auckland who would send me lessons on cassette tape. And it was frustrating, but you know, I didn't make, and I don't think I've ever made my life very easy. You know, the very first book I decided that I wanted to read when I was learning Braille. Um, was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And actually, I don't think that was a great choice because <laughs> <laughs> it was quite difficult. There were concepts and words and everything that were quite tough when you're sort of like 24 or so um, trying to wade through this completely foreign um, tactile uh, reading and writing system. At least open the pod bay doors is pretty easy to read. Yeah, you know, well, open the that's pod right. Bay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, So, Dave. yeah, no, I'm really yeah. pleased to have learnt Braille and I often smile to myself when I hear um, really very, very good Braille readers, people who've learned it as a small child. You know, they'll stand up and they'll read Braille just as well as anybody reads print um, and better in lots of cases. I could never do that. I've tried and I've asked for advice and things, but I've kind of accepted now that it's probably just going to be um, bullet points for me pretty much. When I give a presentation, I have my bullet points and I have to rely on my memory quite a lot. You've been involved in the consumer movement here in New Zealand extensively as well, and I think one of your many claims to fame is that you were instrumental in founding an organisation specifically to deal with the needs of blind women. Yeah, um, vision-impaired empowering women. 
that was founded quite some years ago now, and it's still going, which is very gratifying. And um, I think at the time it was really needed. It still appears to be as well. And, yeah, I, I'm quite pleased that that's still carrying on. What are some of the issues in a Western country like New Zealand that require specific women's issues, advocacy in the disability or the blindness sector? I guess mostly they're to do with women's health. I mean, that's what springs to mind immediately, um, including reproduction, because a lot of the time you're battling with this whole medical issue. You know, if we can't fix you, we're not interested in you, which is, is I guess, the way that I always think of the med- medical model of disability. Um, and as a blind woman, if you want to be a mother, there are often lots of people telling you that, you know, you shouldn't be considering that, that it isn't fair to yourself or you, any children you might have. So there are some big issues around the whole pregnancy, maternity, childcare, um, all of those issues. But then there are also issues for those of us who don't have any children, just in terms of, of your own reproductive um responsibilities, different things to do with um, breast care and all those kind of health issues. Um, And a lot of it is really related to the sorts of issues that you would think of for any woman, but kind of twice over because there is a a kind of discrimination and often even a persecution um, if you have a disability and you just want to live an ordinary and good life. Do you think there are some relationship issues to do with being a blind woman as well in the sense that I've heard it said that it's easier for a blind man to find a sighted partner because women are by default nurturing. And obviously there's a lot of generalisation going on in both directions here. But that men tend to be more sort of sensitive about image and who they have on their arm. Do you think that's true or is that a gross generalisation? It is a generalisation. I'm just trying to think. I don't know that I ever set out to necessarily find a uh, sighted partner. But, um, yeah, I think it's probably a little difficult for a blind woman from those perspectives of of child caring and rearing that I mentioned before. But also um, there are, I think men often have higher expectations of what they think is going to be their ideal in a wife. And, you know, people do tend to see disability as a deficit, like it or not. And if you're blind, then, you know, you're going to be someone to be pitied and whatever. So it's hard to find someone who doesn't believe that. And it's really good when you can, because uh, believe me out there, you'll keep meeting up with that all the time. If you have a sighted partner, whether you're a man or a woman, you're always going to find that their family and friends, there will be those among them who thinks that the sighted person's an absolute saint and the person with the disability, whether it's blindness or something else, uh, is a bit of a leech. Yes, aren't they marvellous for taking them on? Yeah, and the reality is very different. You know, in all relationships and marriages, there there are huge um, misnomers out there about relationships. Uh, And it's just amazing when you really come and you talk to people Um, There are lots of marriages out there, for example, that are pretty plutonic, and that's about it, and that's fine, and it works really well for them. Um, I mean, I actually know somebody who's gay but is asexual, so is married to someone of the opposite sex because basically that's their best friend. So, you know, and in the same way, there are lots of marriages where one person's disabled and the other one isn't, and it's actually the disabled person who is 
the most capable. So you just can never generalise. Yeah, there's a lot of interdependence in any relationship yeah. and, and disability may or may not have anything at all to do with that interdependence and who does what. Yeah. You managed the mainstream program for a while, and this is a really good New Zealand initiative, I think, although I get the impression that it may not be as well-resourced, as well-funded as it once was. The public sector in most countries seems to have quite a good track record for the employment of disabled people, and the mainstream program sought to really aggressively promote that, I guess, by allowing employers in the public sector to have an obligation-free trial, as it were, uh, without any kind of expense from their budget of a person with a disability. And it seems that that often did lead to other things. Yes. Um, I managed the mainstream program for 16 years for the State Services Commission. And for those who aren't in New Zealand, that is a, a central agency of government. So it has quite a lot of power. Um, and then I was also asked to manage that program over to another department, which uh, for about 18 months. And then at that stage, I sort of thought that it was probably time I moved on and did something else. But the, the beauty of the mainstream program, yes, was that it enabled an employer to take somebody on for two years, um, subsidised fully for 100% for the first year and at 50% for the second. So there was some sort of contribution asked for. Um, but all the training and a lot of the equipment could be purchased through the mainstream program. And at the end of the time that I managed the program, 61% of people who were taken on under the program were still in employment two years after the end of the program. So that's a pretty good success rate. We had had it up as high as 69% uh, before some other changes were made to the program. And since it's been... Uh, managed now by the Ministry of Social Development, there are other changes that have been made, but it, you're right, isn't actually quite as well resourced or publicised anymore, which is a bit of a shame considering that the Ministry is a much larger organisation and one would have thought that it would have been oversubscribed, but that doesn't seem to have happened. It is a common theme on this programme and it doesn't matter who in the word I interview from what country, that despite all of these civil rights victories that we've had and all of the progress with UN conventions and all this good stuff, there is still this tremendous unemployment problem around the world, particularly with blind people, which seems to be one of the most feared disabilities in the workplace. How on earth do we make progress on that? It's certainly not easy. I think there's a poll conducted, or at least there used to be in the States um, each year, about you know what would be the worst disability you have, and I think blindness was always at the top. Yeah. And I assume that's that's an, a, a kind of caveman response to fear of the dark or something. It's probably something primordial. Um, and yes, if you ask people, they'll always say that blindness would be the worst thing to have, uh, and yet I can personally think of worse things, but I think, you know, I could be told that it's because I'm used to being blind, and I guess there's some truth in that. I think the best way to deal with what I call the fear factor, and I think the fear factor is really the most prevalent when it comes to disability, is to engage with people at a very human level and talk to them about what it really means to have a disability, what it doesn't mean, 
I think that the um, expression coined by Stella Young, I'm not sure whether it was around before she she coined it, um, of uh, disability, no, inspiration porn is probably correct. Yeah, there I've only a- just recently heard this expression, inspiration <laughs> porn, and the first time I heard it I thought what a gross expression <laughs> that is. You know? But the more I think about it, the more it's right, especially when you look at some of these blindness organisations around the world that are charitably funded for essential rehabilitation services. And I think that's really, in a lot of cases, just a public policy anomaly. We have it in New Zealand where core rehabilitation services that a blind person needs are in some part, at least, funded from charitable donations. And, uh, you know, that's not very sexy to get an 85-year-old woman learning how to pour a cup of tea when they've got age-related maculopathy and their sight's gone bad. It's hard to sell that. And so they find this, I guess, inspiration porn, this term, where they try and um, say, look, this is marvellous. Ordinary things are suddenly marvellous. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a shame, and I think it's a reflection on where we're at with society, to be honest. There's lots of um, times when things are marvellous when you just think they're very, very ordinary. And to be honest, I feel that way a little bit about child-rearing. I don't think it does anybody any favours to 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 really praise your children to the height to for doing really ordinary things. It's fine to say it's great, but it's not fine to say it's you know anything other than sort of fairly normal really um yeah the the whole inspiration porn thing i think is very destructive because it does a few things it sets up an expectation that every person that the average person meets who's who's blind or, or has any kind of disability is going to be the same as that great person they just saw on tv last night who can you know climb a mountain and cross a stream in a single bound or whatever um, then they expect everybody to do it or if it's something where their disability has been in inverted commas, cured, um, then you're asked the next day or the next week, you know, why your disability can't be cured. So those things are not really very helpful. I think one of the best ways to get it through to people that disability is just part of life's continuum and it's something that, that could be out waiting for anybody is to talk about ordinary situations with them and put them into positions where they need to think I guess in ways that they perhaps haven't thought of before and I know in the workshops that I run I usually come up with a bunch of scenarios where people have to kind of think about issues that they may not have dealt with before but I always make sure that those issues relate to areas that that the people in the workshops are familiar with. So for example um, not long ago I wrote some workshops for people who were working um, with members of the public in a, a pool setting. So um, this was for a local council and, you know, how would you work with these people who have come along to, to use the pool? And that can be anything from people who are blind and might need some mobility assistance through to people with learning disabilities who um, need to know about the rules of the pool, you know, whatever it might be and just giving them some scenarios, the people who work there, to to work with those people and how would you manage relationships and talk about things like respect and and people just being ordinary people. And they do get it mostly. Sometimes you'll get someone who's really resistant, but what I always think is that if you get someone really resistant and you can turn their attitude around, um, you can have the best advocate then. 
Um, and recently I did do that when I was working back in a department for a two-year contract. Um, there was some work being done, some access work on the building. We'd moved out of one building into another. And the work was being done on access, but also um, earthquake strengthening and things like that. When I say access, I don't mean that very broadly. I spoke to the um, the guy who was in charge of the building prod project about making the building accessible in every way. So physically accessible for people using wheelchairs through to the use of eye beacons and all those lovely things in between. And at first he was really reticent and quite resistant about that. I don't really know what button I pushed, to be honest, with this particular chat, but uh, I got him in the end to think that accessibility was just the best thing since sliced bread. So he's not only ensured that the new building, this is the new Ministry of Health building that staff are about to move into, is as accessible as it can possibly be in 2016. But I think he's now advising other departments about their accessibility needs. So that's an example of of where it can really be worthwhile to, to spend that bit of extra time to talk to someone. Coming back to the inspiration porn for a second, there's yeah. another facet of this, I think, too, and that is that sometimes it can bring other blind people or other disabled people down in the sense that you sometimes hear professionals saying, well, you know, so-and-so is a super blind or a super blink, and you can't realistically expect to aspire to some sort of height. So it can actually do the reverse, and people can think that, yeah, this blind person's exceptional, but you are not. Absolutely. Yeah, it can definitely work as a put-down. Disability Responsiveness New Zealand, that's a, that's a grand name. <laughs> What's it all about then? This is a new company that you've recently started. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and I've deliberately made it not a charity. I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the charitable notion and, and how that's possibly outdated now. I think it sends the wrong message, actually. So I've gone into the kind of social enterprise um, space in terms of, you know, using commercial solutions. I guess by that, really, I very simply mean that, you know, I've got um, lots of uh, abilities and training, knowledge and experience and whatever um, working in this area. And I also have a, a bunch of associates that I can call on to provide solutions. And I think that the commercial bidders um, pay us and we'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah. But that's fair enough. Um, yeah. And I, I don't really want to have to accept donations from people because, as I said, I think it sends the wrong message, and I think this is this is work that's really needed. Um, so Disability Responsiveness New Zealand has two major aims. One is to provide um, disability responsiveness education and training to everybody, uh, and that's, you know, world domination stuff, I know. Um, the other aim, and this is a big one, particularly in New Zealand today, is that um, Disability Responsiveness New Zealand wants to provide uh, training and education in the area of capability building to the disability sector. Now, one of the things that's happening in New Zealand right now is that our government is very keen to engage with the disability sector on a number of things. And there are all sorts of um, pieces of legislation and whatnot that are coming up. There's there's lots of different ways of doing things being tried. So there's lots of consultation in one sort or another happening. And all of these departments are aware now that they need to consult with disabled people, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's something that lots of us have been wanting for a long, long time. 
the issue really is that there are not a lot of disabled people out there who understand what the government need, who understand the environment, the machinery of government and all of those things um, in order to be able to provide really good advice to the government. So it's one thing for us as disabled people to say we want to be consulted, but I think it behooves us to actually understand the environment that we're consulting in. Um, And there are people, of course, who do understand this environment. I'm not meaning to imply that nobody does. The fact is, though, that most of the people who do understand how to do it are already doing it, or they're already doing their own thing or working in their own areas. And so there are a lot of people out there who need to have this knowledge and understanding if they're going to have their own say. So really, the whole thing is directed at disabled people having a say in in what happens to them as citizens. So advocacy training, learning how to write a submission, going to a select committee, that kind of stuff. All those things. How do you get paid for that stuff, though? Well, it's going to be, you know, Disability Responsiveness New Zealand was only launched in May, so it's kind of at the very technical phase at the moment of what I call suck it and see. So I'm not sure, I guess, is the answer, but I really want to be able to convince people that it is worthwhile to pay for that. Um, I have had some talks with various people in government as well as um, people in some of the the, uh, disability agencies. Everyone says it's a great idea, so I'm putting the idea into people's heads. The next thing is that I will need to um, put bids in for various contracts uh, to provide some of these services. So a lot of it's going to be up to me to convince people that, that it's worthwhile to invest in the sorts of things that I'm talking about. Um, I do think, though, that also that I need to come up with some ideas for some solutions for government. So I, I want to go and talk to, for example, the Office for Disability Issues about um, setting up some training workshops on uh, capability building that they might like to pay for, which would be lovely. Mm. Have um, you have you noticed that a lot of people are expected to do things for nothing in this sector? Oh, yes. In a way that I haven't seen before. And in my particular line of work, particularly you see, say, app developers expecting people to give them advice and test their apps for free. You see it in, in all sorts of areas in the disability sector where for some reason – you know, if this was some sort of uh, advice on on management consultancy or any other field, there would be a heavy consultancy fee that you'd have to pay to get that expert, quality, well-written, well-presented advice. And yet maybe it's just because of how many charities there are in this sector. Disabled people are sort of expected to hand over their information, which has value, and in my view, monetary value, for nothing. Absolutely, yeah. And I I must say that I have had that not only from the kind of mainstream sector, but unfortunately I've also had it from fellow disabled people. Mm. Um, For example, one of the products that I have written previously, and I'm just in the process of modifying, is a personalised mentoring program, which is a one-to-one mentoring with um, a disabled person over eight sessions, either face-to-face or on the phone. So, I mean, it can be done long distance. And there's kind of homework things for them to do in between time. It's quite participatory. And I remember a man ringing me because I'd run a workshop and I'd mentioned that that I had the um, personalised mentoring programme as well. And he rang me and wanted to register for one. Uh, and about halfway through our conversation, I mentioned, he, I 
No, he didn't ask me. I told him how much it cost and he got very hostile indeed and felt that I should be um, not only giving my intellectual property but my time away for nothing. Yes, yeah. And it's very common and it's really insulting and I I don't really think people realise how insulting it is but actually, guys, we have to live. (laughs) Well, in an era of high unemployment among our community, it is incredible how many within our community seem to resent people having very particular skills, very particular knowledge, and just trying to put some bread and butter on the table. (laughs) Exactly. It's extraordinary. That's exactly right. But, you know, you said something before that resonated really with me, and that is that um, blind people in particular seem to have such a huge amount of trouble gaining employment. Uh, I did hear a statistic the other day that said that if you're a Braille reader, that actually helps you tremendously. Considerably, I believe, yes. Yes. Um, But however, it's still that that whole fear factor of blindness that seems to really freak people out. And it's very difficult. You know, you go into a job interview, you've got all, you know, I've got a lot of qualifications now. Since that first foray in social work, um, I built up quite a lot of qualifications. I've got a master's degree. I'd love to do a PhD if I could just get someone to fund it. They're tremendously expensive, but there's some fantastic research out there in the disability sector that I'd really love to undertake. However, um, you know, you go in there, you've got your qualifications, you've got years and years of experience in several different careers. And it's, it's like the shutters come down. And I think I've worked out why. I believe that the average employer sits there and they listen to you talking and they think, gosh, I don't really understand how a blind person could do those things. Mm-hmm. They close their eyes, right? And they yeah. think, yeah, if I were blind, I couldn't possibly do this. So how can they? And and it just, and not very long at all, it goes from, I don't think I could do it to no one can do it. And before you know it, they actually really don't believe in you at all. Do you think that this is a danger of human rights legislation, even though obviously it does a lot of good, that it has swept a lot of these fears under the carpet and that people are very concerned to raise these questions, that sometimes if they did raise the question, if they felt confident about having a frank discussion with a potential employee and saying, I I, I just genuinely don't understand how you would do this particular aspect of the job could you explain it to me they they're reluctant to do that now for fear of of some sort of action being a result of it yes i think you're right and um, when i have a job interview i usually say at the end when you're asked if there are any questions that you have i actually offer um look i'm really happy if you want to talk about the blindness you know it can be the elephant in the room and you know i've got this that and the other piece of equipment and some people are happy to talk about it and other people act like you've just taken all your clothes off. <laughs> um, the other thing is that in terms of workshops that I run, I always make that offer. You know, let's have a frank discussion. Don't please feel that you've got to be what you might consider PC. Okay, if they say something really insulting, I've offered, you know, I have to accept that, but I can still... Um, give them a bit of a steer on what might be really good language in the disability space. But it's you're right, there are lots of people. I've got friends who will say to me, oh, look, I'm so concerned about saying the wrong thing because I know this other person and they've snapped my head off and it's really terrible. And if people are feeling like that, you do have to put them at their ease to some degree. But it's often hard to know who is feeling that way. 
I know a lot of disabled people, blind people, who have devoted a lot of their life to trying to make a difference, making money as well, because, you know, what the heck's wrong with making some money? Yep. But they've chosen work in the disability arena because they're motivated to try and make things better. And then maybe there comes a point where there's a job that comes along that they really would like, and it's outside of the disability sector. And they may be quite a senior manager. They may have considerable project management skills, a whole bunch of really sharp things. And the job description looks like it's made for them. And yet they are pigeonholed because people don't perceive those skills that are used in the disability sector as transferable. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But you don't really seem to have had that problem. Um, no, I suppose I kind of started the other way around, really. Right. So I started out as, as a care and protection youth justice social worker in a, in a very mainstream setting. And along with that, just before I did that for my last year at university, I worked pr- part-time as a probation officer. So again, in a mainstream setting. And then when I'd done the care and protection social work for a while, I went into community social work, and that is when I suddenly saw that there was a possibility to work in disability because a lot of the contract funding was going to disability agencies, and so I made a bid to do that side of the work, and that's kind of where it started. Then I went from that to running mainstream for 18 years, And then it wasn't really um, until I left there that I got more heavily into um, the disability sector because I got into training um, in the Health and Disability Commission and at the um, Capital and Coast District Health Board. I guess the break with that, but still with the disability sector, was doing the two years at the Ministry of Health, implementing a very big set of 36 recommendations that were related to people who were disabled living in residential support services. And in a way, that completed the circle because um, when I was in community social work, I I did some work in that area in the registration inspection, which actually was very funny because um, it's quite funny when you have a blind person come along to inspect your house that the windows are side-hung and not top-hung and what the smoke detectors are doing and all that sort of... But, you know, I did the mainstream stuff first and then went more and more into the disability sector. Um, I suspect now if I tried to do something that was outside that sector, I'd have a very tough time because I think I'm well and truly typecast now. Yeah, it's a real dilemma. I'm, I'm just not sure how we shifted. It's a, a, a dreadful concern for people who are very capable and are being underutilised because, sure, unemployment's a big problem. Underemployment is also an issue. It is a big problem, but if I had a piece of advice to give to anybody out there listening um, who's got any kind of disability, whether it's blindness or anything else, if you know you've got knowledge, skills, experience in, in whatever it is, stick your head above the parapet, believe in yourself and really go for it. I mean, I, I had one or two people um say not to me but through other people to me you know who do you think you are this starting up this organization and calling it you know disability responsiveness New Zealand and I just sort of stopped and took a deep breath and thought you know I'm 58 years old I've had a lifetime worth of experience qualifications I've built up skills I think I am completely qualified to be able to do this and I think the thing about um, DRNZ is that um, the byline is nothing in our name without our direction. So it's it's more than nothing about us without us anymore. It's about 
we need to be running things to do with disability. So what I'd encourage everybody out there to do, especially if they want to work in the disability sector, is you guys are the ones that should be running it. It shouldn't be people who are not disabled. It shouldn't be people who don't know anything. It shouldn't be people who come to you and say, oh, I don't know anything about disability, but I'm earning 300000 a year and you're going to teach me, aren't you? No, mm. why should you? Yeah, why should you indeed? The evidence would suggest that we may be less in control now. I look at the Blindness Agency in New Zealand, for example, and there seem to be fewer senior managers who are blind themselves than I can recall in a very long time. I would love to see some official information, and perhaps as part of this program I will lodge an Official Information Act request on the level of disability in the public service. Do you know about that? Has it declined over time? I don't even think the figures are captured anymore, but yeah. I know the last time I looked when I was doing my master's thesis that they were declining. Yes, it's my perception that they are. I think we've gone back to the future, unfortunately. Why is that? Because, you know, we have an increasing number of disabled people on boards of these organisations, and yet it seems that we ourselves are reluctant to put people with a disability in charge of these organisations. And I'm not talking about the government. I think my perception is that at a governance level, we're actually not doing too bad. But when it comes to actually operationalising the philosophy of self-determination, we are doing abominably, it seems. Well, I always talk about uh, internalising other people's negative attitudes and I don't think that we can downplay the impact that that has and I think subconsciously for a lot of people um, they believed the negative press out there about disability and about the capabilities of disabled people um, you know I talked before about wanting to help build capability in the disability sector what I'm saying is that, that there is some but it's a bit latent because actually a lot of it's jolly well being knocked out of us. Uh, I don't think we have a lot of self-belief. And so if you don't have self-belief, it's pretty hard to believe in other people. There's a phenomenon that I think is present worldwide, but New Zealanders have what I believe was a unique, unique name for it because when I've mentioned it elsewhere, people kind of say, oh, that's an interesting name for it. <laughs> and this is the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. And I think this comes into play too. And the tall poppy syndrome in a disability context means that I think we are such an oppressed minority. When someone is able, for whatever reason, in their chosen profession to stick their head above the parapet, there's some resentment from the rest of the community about that. And I think that's what sometimes happens uh, at a governance level, that somebody comes along perfectly qualified to do an operational job, their peers will not give them the role. They, it's almost like there's a resentment of the money or, or the prestige or something. And I think we're not the only sector that happens in. I think there are other sectors that... There I think if we go back um, 30 years, we'll find that a lot of women had the same sort of scenario. I think a lot of people of colour have a similar scenario as well. Um, and I think that a lot of it is because of this lack of self-belief. A lot of it is because I think subconsciously, you know, there's still a striving for us all to be the same which is a bit of a shame, really, because I think diversity is a great thing. Uh, and the older I get, the more I think that. Uh, but we all know that at some level, you have to be so-called normal to be accepted. And it's all those things that are hard as well, you know, like how we've got to work twice as hard to be accepted halfway. Those things are inherently unfair. And I think that we really, as a group, are quite persecuted um, every day. 
really. It's funny because I, I remember talking to someone who's quite high up in the Human Rights Commission and saying, well, you know, we could actually all lodge grievances uh, in terms of our human rights every day if we really wanted to, but who wants to be in that space all the time? Um, so, uh, I, you know, I go back to what you, what I said before. If you don't have a lot of self-belief, it's quite hard to believe in others. And then I think there is also just a bit of plain old jealousy. You know, I haven't bothered to educate myself or to um, be take my courage in both hands and stand up for what I think I can do. So therefore, I don't want anyone else to. It's a bit sad. It's it's a bit of a dirty little secret, but I do think it's um, relevant. And there's an odd double standard that applies because you made the comment about somebody being paid $300,000 a year who knew nothing about disability mm. in a very senior role and there's a perception that they can be taught, they can be hmm. put through an induction process, they can learn about disability. But someone who has experienced disability all their lives and have a significant background in that area, apparently the reverse isn't true, that maybe <laughs> they have enormous leadership qualities and management qualities and maybe the discrimination that exists means that they haven't been, say, a chief executive before. But apparently it's not possible for them to pick up uh, the very small number of skills that they might not have had to apply before with all this experience of disability behind them. Yeah, and I think part of that, Jonathan, is that there's a real horns and halo syndrome going on. I'm not sure if you know about the horns and halo. I don't know about that. So if if you're, a, say, a manager or a board member, and in some way you're involved in recruitment, um, if you're a halo person you're only interested in employing people like yourself. They they have a halo. If other people come in who are different to you, they tend to grow horns. So unfortunately, there are a lot of halo managers around and, and halo board members. I remember when I was managing the mainstream program and at its height, I had a staff of eight people. I deliberately recruited for diversity. It's always in the back of your mind, is this person going to fit in with the team? But what I always used to think was, we've already got a person who's really good at this. We don't need another person. We need a person who's good at that thing. Or we need a person who's going to question. Because, you know, you never get change without questioning. And as a manager, I was always really happy for my views and my opinions to be questioned. And sometimes I'd say, uh, actually, I was wrong. You're quite right. And that's fine. It's okay to do. But some people are very scared of it. And I think in the same way, um, people just think that anybody that they recruit into whatever position has to think and, and act like them. People are always more comfortable that way. Edward, how will you judge whether Disability Responsiveness New Zealand has made a difference? You've got any kind of measurements you're looking at? I've started out with a survey, so an online survey that's gone around New Zealand, and I'm going to keep it open for a bit longer. Um, it's through SurveyMonkey, and it's basically just asking nine questions. Now, a few of those are demographic, but most of the questions are asking about what people think is, do they think there's a need for education and training and disability responsiveness? Do they think that people need to know more about it? And just seeks their views. When I come to collate the answers, um, probably in the second half of November, that's going to give me, I think, quite a steer on where I should be going with the organisation and in a way what other people think would success might look like. 
in terms of what I think at this point, um, I think success will be when DRNZ is known throughout New Zealand as the go-to place for education and training and disability issues. Just before I forget to make this point, I think it's important too that I make the point that what I would like to do is to work with other disabled people. That's one of the main things about my organisation that sets it apart from others. I deliberately want to attract and work with fellow disabled people who are incredibly talented and skilled and be able to showcase that as part of what we do so that not only are we saying, oh, well, we're really good at this, that and the other thing, but proving that we are by being the people who write the programs and the training. The fun part is going to get that to be funded. I realise that's going to be difficult. Um, But what I want to do is to see how it goes. If I can get to the point where I'm looking at being able to employ someone, even part-time, I'm then going to register as a company. So at the moment I'm not, but I will do that. Uh, Again, don't want to go the charity route really, it's going to be a company. And then I want to be able to um, carry on uh, contracting for funding to provide a lot. I mean, there's a lot even in the advocacy space that's not really happening right now that I think DRNZ could do. Um, But I think it's real key that and a strength that I want to work with other disabled people on this. It's going to be interesting to see how it goes. And, of course, you have the website there at drnz.co.nz and there's a newsletter that people can sign up to who would like to know more information. So that'll develop over time, I've no doubt. And you're on Facebook as well with a Facebook page. And I really welcome input and feedback from other people. Thanks, Jonathan. Excellent. Great to talk with you, Pam McNeil. Thanks for coming on The Blind Side. I'm sure we'll talk again. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.